Good morning. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom with power. Up to this point in Matthew's gospel, the disciples have seen Jesus exerting an incredible amount of power. They had traveled with Jesus through the villages and and towns of Galilee, listening to him preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And then they had experienced and and seen the kingdom of God coming near through what Jesus was doing. They saw firsthand Jesus healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, calming storms with a word, feeding thousands of people with only five loaves and two fish, They even saw Jesus walking on water. Jesus was doing the kinds of things that only God would do. He was saying the kinds of things that only God would say. All of what Jesus said and did up to this point in Matthew's gospel pointed to the fact that he is the Christ, the spirit-anointed king, just as Peter had confessed a few verses before. Jesus is the only begotten son come to rescue humanity from sin and the dominion of darkness and to bring us into God's kingdom of light, love, and eternal life. But in Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus speaks of something even more significant that is about to be revealed to the select few for the benefit of all who will believe in him through their message. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, Jesus led Peter, James, and John up a high mountain by themselves, and there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. In John's gospel, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. But nowhere else in the gospels, Do we read of Jesus glowing and shining like he is here? Peter, James, and John are given eyes to see the brilliance of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. They are given a glimpse of who Jesus is on the inside revealed on the outside. In him, there is no sin or darkness. He's perfectly pure and radiantly beautiful. What's happening on this mountain is a foretaste of the resurrection and Jesus' ascension into heaven. Peter, James, and John are seeing Jesus in his glory. And Matthew tells us that Moses and Elijah appear. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses is the prophet God used to rescue his people from oppression and slavery. And Moses is the one that God used to give his people the law. And it's obedience to the law that God formed his people into a unique people who would reflect his character and participate in his life. And then Elijah, he's considered like the the power prophet. Through him, God revealed his strength over the prophets of Baal. And Elijah did not experience death. He was taken up into heaven on a chariot of fire, and it was predicted that Elijah would return to prepare the way of the Lord. 
Actually, if we flip to the very last words of the Old Testament in, in, in Malachi, chapter 4, verse 4, 4 to 6, this is what it reads. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him on Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send my prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah is a picture of fulfillment. All that God had promised through the law and the prophets is now coming to its completion in him. Peter sees what's going on, and he makes the suggestion that they build three tents, three dwellings, for these three important people. Peter is known for speaking um, when he hasn't really grasped what it is he's talking about. In chapter 16, Jesus told the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and then on the third day rise again. Um, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. Peter could not accept a crucified Messiah. I think if we're honest, we're a lot like Peter. We welcome victory and prosperity and power, but we don't always know what to do with suffering and pain and struggle. We want to stay up on the mountaintop, basking in the light of God's glory. We don't want to go down into the valley where things are tough, where we're surrounded with brokenness and pain. I wonder if Peter, suggesting that he set up this camp, was coming out of a longing in him to maintain the experience. There are seasons when we experience God in powerful ways. It's natural to want to stay in that space and to, to, to keep going in that, in that way, like we're seeing right now down in, in the States at Ashbury University. We seek also sometimes to want to return to the glory days, don't we? We want to, we want to go back to those times in our, in our journey where we just had this incredible sense of God's presence The truth is that mountaintop experiences don't last forever. They are precious when they happen because God is pulling back the veil of reality long enough to get for us to get a glimpse of his glory. And whenever we come into contact with the living God, there's something that happens to us. We're transformed. We experience his love and his goodness and his life. And that is a very good thing. It changes us. It gives us a, a renewed sense of purpose and a, and a clear vision of, of what's happening in our lives. But we can't stay on the mountain forever. Jesus is the one who leads us into this mountaintop experience. We need to keep our eyes firmly fixed on him. As soon as we lose sight of him, we lose sight of what God is doing. And we can end up turning Christianity into something that it was never meant to be. I appreciate how Richard Halverson, he was the former chaplain of the United States Senate. He warns of this danger that I think we all need to be aware of. He says this, he says, Christianity began on Palestinian soil as a relationship with a person. It moved onto Greek soil 
and became a philosophy. It moved onto Roman soil and became an institution. It moved onto British soil and became a culture. And then it moved onto American soil and has now become an enterprise. As soon as we lose sight of Jesus, Christianity can become something it was never meant to be. It's all about him. It was always meant to be all about him and having a relationship with him. The way forward, whatever our situation, whatever predicament we find ourselves in, is to let go. Stop trying to control God. Stop trying to maintain some elevated experience of God. Stop trying to go back to the glory days. But trust Jesus in the moment. This is where we need God's help the most, is it not? We need to learn how to trust God in the midst of our struggling and in the midst of suffering. After Peter suggests that they set up this camp, Matthew tells us in verse, in verse 5, while Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. A voice speaks from the cloud. Whenever we see clouds in the Bible, think God's presence. The cloud of God's presence descended on Mount Sinai when Moses went up to meet with God face to face. The cloud of God's presence descended on the tent of meeting. It descended on the tabernacle once it was built. And then it descended again on Solomon's temple after it had been completed. The cloud of God's presence both conceals and reveals. The cloud reminds us that God is beyond our understanding. God is mysterious. He is hidden from our eyes, like we just sang. He is eternal, immortal, and invisible. The cloud conceals God, but it also reveals something. Out of the cloud, God the Father speaks. This is my son. He wasn't speaking to Moses, uh, Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John. He wasn't saying, these are my sons. He was talking of Jesus. He was speaking in the singular. This is my unique son. He is the exact radiance of my glory. He is the image bearer, the perfect image bearer. There's no one else like him. This is my son whom I love. We've heard this voice before at Jesus' baptism, speaking almost the same words. The father loves his son. The father shares all that he has with his son. The love that exists between the father and the son is closer than any relationship that we have ever known. They share an intimate communion with one another by the Holy Spirit. The whole of Jesus' life, every emotion that he felt, every thought he thought, Every thought he thinks, every decision that he makes flows out of his relationship with his father. And Jesus speaks of this love relationship with his father in terms of union and obedience. I and the father are one. I am in my father and my father is in me. I only do what I see my father doing. I only speak what I hear my father speaking. We cannot understand Jesus apart from his loving relationship with his father this is my son whom i love listen to him the father does not say listen to me or listen to moses 
or listen to the prophets. Of course, he's not going he's not, he's not to deny that he's speaking through them. But he wants us to focus on his son. As if God the Father had something more to say to us independent of his son. It's not true. No, the Father directs our full attention to his son. And tells us to listen to him. This is the whole point of the transfiguration story and every other mountaintop experience that we've ever had. Listen to Jesus. Pay attention to Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus and do what he says. After Peter, James, and John hear the voice of the Father speak, Matthew tells us that they fall down on the ground face first because they're terrified. But Jesus comes and he touches them. And he says, get up. Don't be afraid. When we look to Jesus, when they looked to Jesus, they saw what God wants us to see. And as they descended into the valley below with Jesus, he instructs them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The transfiguration is the kingdom of God come with power. It is a foretaste of Jesus' glory. But, as we all know so well, the cross must come before the crown. This is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is powerful because it shatters all of our misconceptions of power. True power is not about being the strongest or about trying to control God or others or making a name for ourselves. True power comes through confessing our weaknesses, laying down our lives for one another, and then being obedient to Christ. The cross is powerful because it reveals how much God loves us. The Father said, this is my Son, whom I love. The Son, if you think about it, the Son, Jesus, means more to God the Father than anything else. And yet, God the Father gave up his Son in order to die so that we would never die, so that we would be with him forever. Jesus did something for us that can never be repeated. He died in our place. He died so that we would be set free from sin. And by dying for us, we now have access to the Father. We can enter into God's presence and experience the same love that exists between the Father and the Son. And the cross is powerful because it is the model for how we are called to live. Jesus did not only die for our sins. He shows us how to die to sin. We can't imitate him dying for our sins, but we have to imitate him dying to sin. This is what he's talking about when he says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. What does it look like? It looks like staying close to him and he leads us, not into temptation, but he delivers us from evil. It looks like resisting temptation the way that he resisted temptation, like we see him doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
he was tempted to avoid suffering. He was tempted to avoid bearing the weight of the sins of the whole world, but instead he prayed. He waited on the Father. He turned his suffering and all of his anxiety, he brought it to the Father, and he said, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but your will be done. And the Father answered his prayer by strengthening him to trust and to wait. You and I, we're going to suffer. If we haven't already, we will. But we will never experience the same level of suffering that Jesus experienced on our behalf. The important thing to remember is that the Father will not leave us alone in our suffering. He is with us and he will give us everything that we need as we need it so that we will remain in his loving presence. The cross is powerful because it shatters all our misconceptions of power. It reveals the Father's love for us. And the cross is the way that we are formed and shaped into the likeness of Christ. Friends, this week, as we prepare to enter into the season of Lent, which is going to start this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, which is all about fasting and repentance, take some time and contemplate the transfiguration. Ask the Lord to bring to mind those mountaintop experiences that you have had in the past. Those are good things. Those are memories that you can pull on that will help strengthen you in the moment as you experience whatever you're going through. Perhaps it would be helpful for you to pray it out loud to God. Spend some time and talk with him about it or share it with a friend or write it down. I find it really helpful to journal. The good news is that Jesus is with us in every circumstance and every situation that we find ourselves in. He is with us on the mountaintops. He is with us in the darkest valleys. And he is with us every step in between. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He provides for all of our needs. He has good things in store for us individually and corporately. And his intention is to form us into a people who trust him, responding to his grace in all the details of our unique lives. As we transition from Epiphany to Lent, may you have eyes to see Jesus. May you have ears to hear his voice. And may you have the courage to follow him wherever he might lead you. Amen.